Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Today we are joined by Dr. Peter Carmichael of Gettysburg College. Dr. Carmichael received his PhD in history from Penn State University. Dr. Carmichael has published several books, including The War for the Common Soldier, The Last Generation, Young Virginians in Peace, War, and Reunion, and Lee's Young Artillerist, William R.J. Pegram. In addition to being an author and a professor, Dr. Carmichael has also worked for the National Park Service, and he was also featured in the PBS documentary on Robert E. Lee. Today, Dr. Carmichael joins the show to talk about his book, his work with the National Park Service, and a variety of other Civil War-related topics. I hope you enjoy this discussion and learn something from Dr. Carmichael. So today we are joined by Dr. Peter Carmichael of Gettysburg College. How are you today, Dr. Carmichael? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, very excited about this discussion. So uh, we're going to look at your book today, The War for the Common Soldier, talk about uh, PTSD, talk about medicine in the Civil War, talk about courage and cowardice, some of these things. But before we jump into that... Uh, well, wait a minute. I mean, I think we got to talk about your shirt and those, are those teddy bears. Like, I'm, I don't think I could go farther. I got to, there's got to be a backstory to the shirt you're wearing. The dancing bears? You don't know about the dancing bears? I don't know anything about the dancing bears. Tell uh, me about the dancing bears. I'm, I'm, a, I'm what you would consider a deadhead, I guess. I love the Grateful Dead. So I actually got this uh, this year at their concert. That's where I was at for my birthday. So very nice. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't. Uh, so how many of the originals are still standing of the, of the dead? About half of them are still. Uh, yeah. yeah. John Mayer's in the band now. And I'm a big. That's what I, I was about ready to say that. I did know that Mayer was in it. Does he bring something to the band? Is he pretty? I, I, mean, I think he does. That's the point of contention amongst deadheads. Some of them get angry right. about it, but I think he's great. So. He, he's, he's too much of a pretty boy for the deadheads. I would have thought. Uh, he, he can play though. I tell you. He what can I'm play, man. No, I, I absolutely. He can play. There's no doubt, doubt about it. Well, good. I got that. I've never seen that. I obviously know something about the dead. What is it? Is it Fire on the Mountain? Is that, is that a song? Yeah, yeah. And when I saw them a few weeks ago, they played that. It was yeah. killer. So. Yeah. That's, that might be the only dead, dead song I, I, dead, <laughs> I know. Uh, I could probably host a, a music podcast too, because that's the thing I love as much as the Civil War. But so, uh, well, well, there's something else I want to know. So, I want to know about your background. So, talking sure. before this, we talked about your background. You served, uh, you worked in the NPS, National yeah. Park Service. And uh, tell us a little bit about that, about your background, how you got into the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. So, I was really fortunate uh, that I had parents who were very supportive of my interest in the war. They took me to Gettysburg when I was six or seven, and I got the bug. That's all I thought about uh, that and basketball. I'm from Indiana. So, <laughs> you have to think about basketball. There's no other choice. And uh, so I was deeply interested. And then I did some reenacting uh, when I was in junior high and high school as a drummer boy, and then advanced uh, and was an infantryman. And uh, I met a lot of people who knew a great deal about the war through reenacting. It was, a, for me, it was a good experience. Uh, but by the time I got to college uh, during the summers, I sort of used that skill set for my reenacting days. To get my first position at Appomattox, I portrayed a Union soldier named uh, Bobby Fields, is his name. And uh, I wore the outfit, of course, and 24-7, man, I had to pretend that it was 1865. And it was a great experience for me. It was a way that I cut my teach teeth as a teacher 
in the park service spot, knowing how to judge an audience, knowing how to work with an audience, understanding their interest level and their knowledge level, trying to create a conversation with them. It was really good. The other thing that was important is that I was a little bit of a lost causer. I didn't think that the war was over slavery. I thought that Ari Lee was, you know, the ultimate general, the ultimate sort of Southern gentleman, all those things. Um, and being in Appomattox, I suddenly had an epiphany one day when everyone kept calling me a damn Yankee and they weren't just saying it in jest. And they said these horrible things about Grant. I thought, good God almighty, this is the general who's responsible for winning the war and reuniting the nation. What in God's name is going on here? So, you know, historically it was an awakening for me as a teacher it was. And then from there, I worked in the park service all the way through grad school. So I spent almost a decade, a little bit more, worked at Fredericksburg, worked at Richmond, Spotsylvania, Wilderness, Chancellorsville, I did all that and loved it and almost almost pursued a career in that direction. But instead, I opted to go to Penn State and I studied under Gary Gallagher, who is uh, retired from the University of Virginia. And I did my PhD there. I bounced around a number of schools. I've not been fired, at least not yet. Uh, I was at uh, <laughs> Western Carolina. I was at UNC Greensboro at West Virginia University and now here at Gettysburg. I've been here for about 11 years. As you can imagine, it's a great place. Best classroom in the world is this battlefield. Be able to take my students there. It's just a real joy. And then the other thing that we do, and I want to emphasize we, my staff at the Civil War Institute, part of Gettysburg College, uh, we place between 20 to 30 students every summer at National Park Service sites, some that are non-national park, but the point is you come to Gettysburg College, and we get you the experience to be a practicing historian even before you graduate. And we make it a point to get you situated in a professional network. Uh, we're committed to that. And we're committed again, that, that you will leave this institution and that you will be a better historian uh, than when you came in. So uh, it's, a, it's a great place. I'm very fortunate at the Civil War Institute. I have uh, Dr. Jill Titus and Dr. Ashley Lusky, uh, both of them. Uh, we're all working together for this uh, program. It's called the Brian Pohanka Internship Program. Do you, have you ever heard of Brian Pohanka? Mm -mm. So Brian was a reenactor um, and a historian, but he was very much committed to talking to public audiences. Uh, and Brian tragically died of cancer. Oh. And his family are there. His family's responsible for endowing the internship program that we have. We run at Gettysburg College, and what we also do, what you and I talked about before the show started, is our summer institute. Second weekend in June, every year, second weekend in June, we begin on a Friday with lectures, battlefield tours, discussions. It's fantastic. We get about 250 to 300 people every summer. We have a faculty it is park service, that's academics, that's archivists, you name it. We have an incredible assortment. Since we we're talking about music, I'll make a very rough analogy. It's a Civil War Woodstock. How's that? <laughs> it's Civil War Woodstock without the mud, without the nudity, and without the drugs. Without so Jimi Hendrix. And without Jimi Hendrix. It's <laughs> not much of a of Woodstock, is it? Well, at any rate, it does bring an eclectic group of people together. And I want to stress, I'm looking forward to hoping that you'll come uh, next year. You can be at any point in terms of your, um, your study of the Civil War. You could be just getting going, you could be a, a seasoned veteran, 
And you're going to find something at the conference. It's not just battlefield, but it is military history. It's politics, it's cultural history, it's gender, it's race. We do a little bit of everything. We give people a lot of choice. And then above all else, we want to get people out in the battlefield. I led a tour group. We followed the footsteps of the 18th Virginia. They were in Pickett's Division, Garnett's Brigade. We did the entire walk uh, in the morning. Then we hopped on a bus and we drove to the field hospital uh, for Pickett's Division. And so we read accounts there. And you know that's the kind of, I would say, unique ways that we explore the Civil War history that's right here in Gettysburg. How many years has it been since you've been here? How many? Oof, I'm 24 now. The last time I was there was probably about 10. So it's probably been a good 14 years. I, you know, we, I don't think you should admit that. <laughs> I was fearful. I was fearful you were going to lose some viewers when they said you're a deadhead. But now I'm really nervous for you, man. We got to get you back here to Gettysburg. You're going to really I know. I would love to. And, and that's kind of what we aim to do here is to bring something for someone who's just starting, someone who's intermediate, someone who's advanced, that they can all take something away. So I would highly stress anyone else would go as well. I would love to make Absolutely. it next year. We have a new visitor center since you've been here. And you'll be blown away by it. The Park Service did a brilliant job. They've moved to Cyclorama as well. So I... You know, obviously there is so much to see in the field uh, that when you come for your return visit, uh, I think you need to at least mark off four days minimum, right? Come back for the conference. Come back for the conference. We'll let you go and see the visitor center. Then you got to come back. You got you to you get back here. Well, so. you mentioned the walks, walking uh, pickets charge. What is that like doing that? Is that, I've heard a lot of people say it's very moving. Well, um, it is, and this is not a criticism of the Park Service, but some of my best colleagues are here at Gettysburg in the park. But the signage for Pickett's Charge, it doesn't really, it doesn't really, it does not identify where Pickett's Brigades actually were. And most people walk from the Virginia Monument, the one with Robert E. Lee at the very top. They walk straight from that monument toward the cops' trees, which is about a mile. Pickett's division was not there at all. Pickett's division actually was in front of Spangler Woods and a little bit off to the right. So many of your viewers who have been to Gettysburg, they of course can remember walking down that paved trail. And at the end of that paved trail, there are a few cannon and there's a audio station there, button you can push it. Uh, recalls the very end of Pickett's charge. That's where people think, oh my God, this is where Pickett's men started. And they also imagine that that battle line stretched for more than a mile, a continuous single front from Pickett to Pettigrew. But that wasn't the case at all. Uh, Pickett's men are kind of tucked away. And so what is exciting is that when you come to our conference, you get to actually walk in the footsteps of Pickett's men. Mm. And, and that's a little bit, again, off of the thoroughfare that the typical visitor uses. And then we take them to... This field hospital, right, that's all private property. I went and talked to the owners, right, and said, hey, I'm going to bring a bus of people back here. They want to look at your barn. <laughs> He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, no, they want to see your barn, right? And they want to see your outbuildings. There's some historic outbuildings. And I said, and then we're going to walk down the road, and there's the ruins of an old mill, and there were a number of Pickett's men, including um, Confederate General Kemper, James Kemper, who was wounded, not mortally wounded, who was wounded. He was in that mill for a, a brief time as well. You know, again, I know your viewers, they get it. I don't have to explain why it's so important to be able to connect. Right? These things that we've read about and talked about connected to the ground and it just brings it all together. So it's, it's, a, it's really an exciting part of my job 
and I want to stress that the people that I do this with, I'm just, you know, it's an incredibly talented group of historians. And Keith Bohannon is an example. He teaches at West Georgia State. Keith Bohannon, starting when he was in junior high, started going to little historical societies throughout Georgia. He has files and files of letters and diaries, not original stuff, but he has all this material, original research, going again to the archive, going to the library. Now, Keith, so also worked in the Park Service and he has a PhD. He's done it all, right? I bring him up here and he takes all that research. And I know you've seen, you know, the famous photographs of the Confederates at the Rose Woods. And if you get William Frazanito's book, William Frazanito is the one who was able to identify where those bodies, where that photograph was taken. They're all Georgians, all from Sims's Brigade. There's maybe a few South Carolinians in there, but mostly Georgians. So there's Keith, right? He's got letters and diaries from the survivors of Sims's Brigade. You don't get that from a book, man. You get that by going into the archive. And that's what a professional historian does, right? They get into the original materials. So I got people like Keith Bohannon, who's leading tour groups around, and the attendees here, they're hearing stories. Hell, they never hear anywhere else. And they're hearing it directly from the mouths or the pens of the soldiers who, who were there. So yeah, that's, it's a- That I, sounds incredible. And, and that sounds like something you did in your book as well, right? The War for the Common Soldier is you went into the archives and pulled out those actual stories. Like, like you mentioned, you're trying to connect history to the real people who lived it, right? Absolutely. And so, yeah, the book that I wrote, The War for the Common Soldier, that's now in paperback, so it's not so expensive. Uh, I think you sort of captured one of the um, key objectives that I had for the book. Is that I wanted that book to tell a wide range of stories. It's called micro history. It's just taking an individual and drilling down into that person's life with the intention of being able to explore and think about broader themes and ideas that shaped and influenced the thinking of that particular person. So my point is this, is that the war for the common soldier, there is no one single common soldier who can't, comes out of this book because there wasn't love, there wasn't one, right? And certainly there are certain elements of commonality that soldiers share. But at the end of the day, when we try to find that common soldier, well, you won't find that person. And if you try to do it, you end up sort of stereotyping. And what I mean by that is you create a very thin, a very shallow portrait of what a soldier was. And so the, the key, I believe, is that when we try to understand these men, that it's a, the best way is not to look at the moment during the war. Uh, that to understand that man at war, we need to understand that man's life that preceded 1861. And we also need to understand that man's life and how it's connected to his household, his family life. And we need to also understand the broader cultural world as well. Uh, the point of the war for the common soldier is that I attempted to, and believe that I have uh, largely succeeded in recovering that world that they inhabited. Right? And I'm not just talking about through words and language. I'm talking about how it was actually lived and experienced. I want that reader to pick up that book and get a sense of what these men smelled and what their the touch, what, what that meant to them. Uh, I, I want them to understand environmental history. I want them to understand the, the sensory or the audible part of history as well. There's all these different components 
And I don't think that we can get it if we just simply extract words from a letter and then ask the question, well, why did these men fight? That's an important question. And the letters are extraordinarily rich and they've given us a wide range of diverse and important answers. But, but, but I believe that when we hone in on just again, the words themselves, well, we miss a great deal. Yeah, I agree. Well, one thing I really want to ask you, because if we're really digging into the common soldier and you talked about the conference you guys host, which again, I would implore everyone to go to, I definitely will be making my way out there, walking picket charge, putting yourself in that soldier's, you know, in their boots, the courage and the cowardice is something you touch on in your book. Um, how did these soldiers get themselves to do this? I mean, you talk a lot about desertion, a lot of people desert. Uh, but some of those soldiers do stick around. What in them makes them be able to do these things that are just unbelievable? Right, right. The, the unfathomable to us is what possessed a man uh, to charge on July 3rd, knowing that what awaited him was likely, if not death, a very serious injury. I think, again, by focusing just on that moment of July 3rd, we miss a lot. But we must focus on July 3rd. We must focus on the power of comradeship. We need to focus on the power of the physical touch. And we know that when those men marched, that they were shoulder to shoulder. You're a reenactor, you can speak to that. Mm -hmm. It is a touching of that elbow. Now, again, it's a quick side note here, the idea that these men at Pickett's Charge and elsewhere, that their tactics were akin to suicide because they had some romantic notions about fighting, uh, that they were still lost in their Napoleonic air. All that is an unfortunate and inaccurate explanation. The weaponry that Civil War soldiers used, weapons that at the very most they could fire three times a minute, it demanded that fire be concentrated. You can only concentrate firepower if you're in those long lines called linear formations and your shoulder to shoulder. There's no other way around it. So that's a critical point, but we have to understand that the tactics and the technology necessitated those kinds of formations, necessitated it. What that keeps us from doing is saying, oh my, look at these men. They were from another era. That's when men were men. I think that those kinds of comments don't get us very far in understanding, again, the technology part. And also I would note that there's coercion that is extraordinarily important here. Every soldier knew that if he decided to slip away from the ranks, that he risked certainly to be exposed as a coward or a shirker amongst his peers, that that reputation uh, would probably follow him back home. That's coercion. That's a powerful force keeping those men together. And there's also the coercion of physical punishment. There's the coercion of public humiliation, which they did to men as well. There's the coercion of financially punishing men, especially if they deserted, they dock their pay. And you dock a man's pay, you put him in a state of near poverty, he ain't gonna go anywhere. You gotta, if you deserve, you gotta have some money. There's just no other way around that. And so what we need to do, and I think walking pick up charge is the perfect place to do it. Is to not just look along the line of advance and not just simply sit back and say, the heroism on display here should remind us that the sense of honor and sense of duty was the overriding reason why men made this attack. Okay, yes, to a point. But what I'll do, and if you come back to Gettysburg, I know you will, I'll ask you to turn around and look behind the lines. And when you look behind the lines, 
new stories, important stories come to the surface. And we know that it's behind the lines where there were sheriffs. We know that it's behind the lines where there were men and officers who were trying to do their best to keep those shirkers back up to the front, right? We know that behind the lines is where there's gonna be walking wounded. We know that it's behind the lines on the Confederate side, you would see enslaved people all over the place. So the, the key in my book, as well as when I'm on the battlefield, is to broaden, broaden our understanding, our and I'm taking understanding out there, is to broaden our uh, angle of, of our lens, right? We want the wide angle lens on. And, and then we get that wide angle lens and then we want to go in a circle, right? And we want to take in everything we possibly can because there's the interconnectedness uh, that we have to get to if you truly want to understand the soldier experience, right? The interconnectedness. You go to that battlefield and you need to think about, all right, you know, what were the relationships that these men had with their home community? If you think about the Stonewall Brigade, the Stonewall Brigade is from the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, Shenandoah Valley certainly uh, supplied thousands of men to Confederate armies. But the Shenandoah Valley was also an area uh, that was plagued by dissent on the home front. Uh, there's a county in, Sh in, in Shenandoah Valley called Rockingham County. There's a Rockingham Rebellion in 1862. And so my point is this. You know, you go to a place like Gettysburg and you think about the Stonewall Brigade and you think, oh my God, this unit that was heralded in the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, this unit, you know, if you think of them as in terms of their fighting record, what you're missing is that these men were contending with a hell of a lot. And they were contending with a home front that was uh, in turmoil. And that's really the case for all of these men. One of the, in fact, I have them right here. I, we're almost reluctant to suggest this book because it's too damn hard to find now. It's the letters <laughs> of Charles Bowen. I, I'm going to ask you this after I get it done. Everyone says, oh, if you, in the, in the next life, if you could meet someone from the Civil War era, who would you meet? Who would you want to meet? This is a man I, I mean, maybe Abraham Lincoln would be a close second, but it would be Charles Bowen. He's from Utica, New York. He was a farm laborer before the war. He enlisted in 61 in the 12th U.S. Regulars. He wrote letters in which he just pulled back the curtains. And he offered those people at home a graphic, gritty description of what it meant to be a soldier in the ranks. He was not at all um, inhibited when it came to talking about his emotions, uh, about how he felt not just toward his family, but toward the war itself. Now I'm writing about him after Chancellorsville. And he is enraged, not just because they lost a battle that he felt that they had not lost, that Hooker was one that was defeated, not anybody else, maybe the 11th Corps, right? But he was enraged because he had been reading letters published, and not just letters, articles, in New York papers, particularly New York City, and the Copperhead movement, the peace Democrat wings, right? These people, they want the war to end immediately. They want the draft to stop. He's reading about this and he is beside himself that while he and his buddies are down in Virginia and sweating their little derrieres off, it's blasting hot in May of 63. It's got crazy heat wave and he's miserable, right? And he's now reading about this and he's beside himself. But he wrote his family and he said, can someone please come down here and tell me what we're fighting for now because I'm not really sure anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know, now, this is the same man who stuck it out to 1864. This is the same man after Gettysburg who said that July 4th was a great, July 4th, 1863, was 
this is the greatest July 4th or Independence Day he had ever, ever experienced. He said next year he'd like one that was a little less noisy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the words associated with the battle. Uh, but my point again by him, uh, using uh, Boeing uh, to illustrate that to understand what's going on through these guys' minds, man, you gotta look at it all. And it's fascinating when you do it. And, uh, and that's why I enjoy doing the book so much. I'm right now writing a book on Gettysburg because we all know that we need another book on Gettysburg. <laughs> uh, but my book's different. And that's what everyone always says as well. But my book's different. Well, I think my book is different. In fact, I know it is. My book is gonna follow seven people, three Confederates, three Union and a slave. And it's gonna focus down on their personal lives, but through their personal lives and the journey from Virginia into Pennsylvania uh, and then back to Virginia, uh, we're going to get not just the story of the battle itself, but you'll get a better sense of how these men and an enslaved person in particular, how they grapple and try to make sense of what's truly incomprehensible, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the chaos and the confusion and the uncertainty of, of, of war. So, so it sounds like kind of in your book, The War for the Common Soldier and your Civil War 101 podcast series, even in this uh conference you guys do it sounds like the civil war has got blown out of proportion and we view it as this romanticized conflict with these great heroes and they're brave and they're triumphant and brother versus brother why has the civil war become this why is it not like you put it in your book in your book you show that like you said he's happy on july 4th and then later on he's distraught people desert and then they come back or they fight in these battles and then afterward they desert so they're not one or the other so why do we view the civil war in these black and white terms yeah i think it's a really good question so let's just begin with the uh, temptation whenever we study the past as we want to seek the truth which there is no single truth but in our desire for the truth that requires us to be very reductionist, to see things in a black and white way. So I think that almost any um, endeavor in, 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 into the past, there is that temptation, that temptation to want to walk away and say, this is what happened. Now, certainly July 3rd, 1863 happened, biggest charge. We can all agree upon that. I suspect that with your listeners, we would very much disagree about, well, was that a good decision by Lee? Some people would say yes. Why did, in fact, did it fail? We have a lot of different reasons for that. What about the survivors? Were they all suffering from PTSD? So there is no single truth, but our desire for that. Then I think that this answers the second part of your question. You know, I think it's a mistake if we go so far in knocking down or smashing idols that we cannot look at Civil War generals and Civil War soldiers with a little bit of awe and respect. I think that that's important. I think that many of these men um, upheld values that are, again, um, yeah, worth our admiration. And, and were many of these men brave? Without question, they were. And did they do it for a higher cause that they believed in? Without a doubt. And I think that, you know, for my students, I want them to draw from that. We live in such a cynical world today. And I think that in part it's because how we look at the past, we're so quick to just knock everybody down and find fault with people. And that is part of our job to be critical, but it's not part of our job to take historical figures and say, oh, this person didn't live up to our values today. And I'm gonna hold that person accountable for that. I find that to be very ahistorical and not very revealing. I just read a book in which somebody declared, the author said, 
I'm an abolitionist to a core to the core. I almost want to write the author and say, could you tell me what abolitionist chapter you're a part of? Like we I hope to God everyone in this country can agree or should agree that slavery was a monstrous institution. And I hope we can all agree that there's no slavery anymore. So the notion that I'm an abolitionist to the core is just ludicrous and, and embarrassing. Look, we look at the past to try to understand the complexity of people who don't make sense to us. That's the way to go at it. They are not of our world. And when we accept that, then man, it becomes this journey that is endless. You're never ever gonna get to the end because they're one, the people are so diverse in their backgrounds and their experiences, right? And they make sense to their moments in confusing ways, right? I mean, I just think about, and I'll ask you, you wake up this morning, tell me, do you have a clear understanding as to why inflation's off the charts right now? Because it's off the charts we have, you've never experienced it in your lifetime. I really haven't either. Do you know why? I don't, do you? No. no I'd like to know. <laughs> do you have any sense or idea of what's going to happen in the Ukraine? Do you uh, have any idea of what we should do there? Any smart, respectable, reasonable human being to all those questions would say, I don't know. Now I need to try to understand as best as I possibly can. But there comes humility in studying the past. And if you have humility in studying the past, you better have it when you look at current events around you instead of saying, oh, these problems are so simple there. It's just blank, right? Or just blank. It's not just some guy was going off about, you know, the oil crisis. And it's all because of what happened in the Ukraine. And that's responsible for inflation. Without a doubt, I said, Tim, I said, well, what about monetary policy? Well, I don't even know what that's about. I said, well, I'm not sure I even know all of it, but I know enough to know that it's part of it, right? And so I guess that that's what I would say to your, your viewers, listeners, right? You know, there's a great responsibility in studying the past, and we should come away with it with a sense of pride, but we should never lose you know, our sense of being critical. And then above all else, we walk away knowing, and problems are complex, crazy complex. And when you're in the midst of it, when you're in the maelstrom, as we are now, those three things I mentioned to you, we're in the maelstrom. Man, give people in the past a break. And maybe you'll give people around here a little bit more empathy and understanding as well, right? Things are unfolding in ways that during the Civil War, Civil War soldiers time and time and time again said, oh my God, we can't trust any information. We don't know what to believe in the newspapers. Rumor surrounds us on everything. There is no certainty, right? And I think that that was one of the things that really came to the forefront in doing that book, because there was a destabilization of knowledge. Almost nothing could be, could be trusted. Even, you know, oh wait, there is a God, there is providence, everyone believes that. For the most part, everyone believes that in 1861, right? God intervenes on behalf of his people. All right, you go through that first battle, God to your left, the guy to your right gets killed, and you're still standing, and you're thinking, why? But there's a certain puzzlement to that, and you got to sort of work through that. And they didn't necessarily work through it entirely, you know, uh, in a consistent way, but they're confused. I'll give you very quickly a soldier, and I'm sure you have another question here. A guy named Henry Owen, who is in this new book that I'm writing, he's not in the war for the commissary. Henry Owen was in Garnett's Brigade, biggest division. Henry Owen, in December of 63, had received a letter from his wife. I've not read that letter, but it's clear from Henry's response that his wife was disgruntled and wanted him to 
get out of the army and to come home. And he reminded her in his response that they had a lot to be uh, very grateful for. The very fact that he was on the right side of the side. <laughs> that, that mattered, right? But he also said he'd had a dream. And he decided to confide to her that dream. And in that dream, he found himself back on the Gettysburg battlefield. Mm. And he knew it was Gettysburg because he didn't call them round tops, but he described big round top and little round top. And he said, the sky was black from all the cannon firing, bullets were flying in all directions, men were falling, they began their advance. And he knew he was right back in the thick of it. But what was in front of him? It's almost like um, the thin cloud. Whenever he tried to move, it followed him. No one else had it in front of them. And no one else knew it was in front of him. And wherever he moved, it was in front of him. He could not escape it. And at the very end of the battle, after his regiment had been, again, annihilated, I think it lost close to 80%, somewhere in that range. This sort of cloud spoke to him and said, I am your guardian angel. I protected you in all these battles and I will continue to do so. And then Henry Owen wrote at the end of this letter to his wife that he woke up crying. It's powerful, right? Mm -hmm. Powerful. And should again remind us of how these men came to terms with what you and I would say they didn't have the trauma they certainly didn't have PTSD and, and the war for the common soldier as here these men again because they came from a different world a different world in which killing was understood in a very different way than now they were able again to make sense of it and to live with it and to continue to soldier on and, and in part because again there was a cause and comrades that were worth fighting for. Hmm. So it sounds like that <clears throat> home front, uh, having the people next to you, having your camaraderie, and then having that providence is kind of what drove these soldiers. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, many of them did, not all of them. This, this Bowen guy, I mean, there's um, uh, Bowen was not particularly religious. Uh, there are only maybe one or two times that he sort of made a reference to Providence, but he had just seen so much. Um, and I think what he drew incredible satisfaction from was that in the Army one, he was getting the degree of, I don't want to call it a professional success, but certainly getting a recognition that eluded him before the war when he was just a farm laborer. And, and that was one thing that kept him going. He believed very much in the cause of union. He ultimately came to believe in emancipation, although he was not an abolitionist. So you know, each man you know, has his own story. There's a guy who's in the war for the common soldier named Charles Biddlecom. Let's see if I think I might have a book right here. This is one of my favorite books. It's called No Freedom Shrieker, The Letters of Charles Biddlecom. Get on Amazon, some paperback. No, I know it's a strange title. No Freedom Shrieker. What he meant by that is he's no abolitionist. Uh, Charles Biddlecom was from upstate New York. 
He came into the army in late 1863. He came in, I think he was drafted, uh, but he came in as, as he said, the black sheep of his family. He was married and he was certainly had a very loving relationship with his wife, but with his family, his, his sisters and his parents, uh, he felt that they had no regard for him. He almost deserted uh, in the fall of 63. He was utterly miserable. And then he goes through, through the Overland Campaign, starting at the Wilderness in May of 1864. And as we all know, it's relentless fighting. And there is just a brief note in the middle of the campaign from Biddlecom. And in that brief note, you know, it's basically a declaration of survival. Like, I'm still standing. And I really don't know why, right? <laughs> He's utterly bewildered. And then at the very end of the campaign, uh, what keeps him in the ranks is that he had reputation, the reputation of being a man. And what is telling about the transformation? Again, this is, you know, we talked about this. You, you were to think that if you endured the Overland campaign and that was your first exposure to battle, it was for Biddlecom, then you'd say, get me the hell out of this place enough, enough. That's not the case for Biddlecom. Now, listen, he was miserable in the army as every soldier was, even the most patriotic one. And at one point in June of 1864, he looked at his coat, his sack coat, and uh, he wrote to his wife and said that he'd like to take that coat, send it home. She should stuff it with hay and set it up in his office. And he said that if he ever had a bad day on the farm, he'd look at that coat and he said, and we'd remind him that there were a lot worse places than being at home, right? All right, so then a few weeks later, he received a new sack coat. He had to get rid of that old coat, the coat that he wanted to use as a punching bag. And that old coat became a sacred relic. He wrote to his wife that that coat had uh, the soil of the wilderness, Spotsylvania, North Anna, Totopotomy Creek. He said it had the blood of fallen comrades. He said he didn't think there was a garment that he had ever owned and which he took more pride in. Again, there's a contradiction, and that's again, I think my point, and maybe you have some more observations or questions yourself about combat and what it did to me. And if we have to generalize, and of course we need to, I'd say conflicted is the best way to describe how Civil War soldiers felt toward combat. Hell, nobody wanted to go in and endure that. And there are very few people who found true joy under fire. There are very few. But there were plenty of men who, in the moment, were caught in the spectacle of battle, especially Picket Charge, Union soldiers. Look, they're not riding out of a respect that these are our fellow Americans that we're about to slaughter. It's not that they wrote. They were in awe of the discipline that they that was on display at Picket Charge, right? Because it was that military discipline, that professionalism, that they, the Union soldiers, they could come to respect and admire because they were veterans themselves, right? They were veterans themselves. So, you know, this, this awe or respect that they had for the enemy, it, it can get twisted and perverted in a, in a way, but soldiers on both sides, uh, Bowen, for example, after enduring the Overland campaign, his regiment had suffered horribly. He wrote about them leaving Spotsylvania County, they're coming out of the, the thick woods of the wilderness. And he wrote about, in a very dramatic way, 
that the men's uniforms were in tatters. Many didn't have shoes. They hadn't bathed for God knows how long. They were filthy. Of course, they had lice on their bodies. And he said, to hear these men marching in unison, right? Their feet thudding into that sandy Virginia soil. And that they're all singing together. He said that was a powerful moment, right? That he felt that he was part of something greater because in fact, he, he was part of something greater. So conflicted, conflicted. That's a nice way, at least from my perspective, uh, to be able to capture the complexity of how soldiers felt about these, about these things. Well, it sounds like after, you know, this conversation kind of wrapping it up that when we remember that they're people, right? When we take a look at the individual soldiers, whether it's a common soldier, like your book talks about, or if we look at the upper brass, where we're talking about Grant, uh, Lee, whatever it is, remembering that they're people, that they're complex, that they make mistakes. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I'll say, you know, let's pull it off here. I, I'd say that when we say that they're people, here's even another way to even be more precise about that, because I think you're onto something that's very important. They have private and personal lives. And their letters, not all of them, but many of them, crack open that inner world. And if you want to understand their public acts, if you want to understand or appreciate why they said why they were fighting, you have to connect it to those private lives. And when you connect it to the private lives, then they become just as what you said, more, more human. Here, here's a book that I really recommend to your audience called Private Confederacies by James Broomall. It looks at Southern soldiers from pre-war years through the war into the post-war period. He'd be a great guy to have on your show as well. But he did a, just a brilliant job of exploring the emotional life of some more soldiers. And then here's a copy of my book as well. Like I said, this it's in paperback. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, both the, my book and Jim's book builds upon a really rich, very rich tradition of writing on the common soldier, beginning with Bill Wiley's book, Life of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank. If you've not read that, that's a book, especially if you do any reenacting at all, uh, that's just an absolute must. Uh, is to go with Bell Wiley, Life of Johnny Reb, Life of Billy Yank. It's a really, really good. Both are very, very good books. And then um, Josh Billings, have you ever read Hard Time Coffee? I have it. I actually just got it the other day, but I haven't read it yet. It's an absolute again, it's, it's a must. And then the final thing for your audiences here, uh, this is breaking a, a little bit from the common soldier, is the single most important. Uh, account from Lee's army from a participant. It's called Fighting for the Confederacy. Edward Porter Alexander uh, was not in charge of the entire bombardment, but he had a significant number of guns that was under his purview. Alexander from Georgia, after the war, wrote a private memoir just for his family. He had no intention of publishing it. And of course, it's that reason that his memoir is frank and open and honest, revealing in ways that you just don't see in many other memoirs. Mm-hmm. And it's Gettysburg chapters alone, especially, see, I keep pushing you to come back here. The Adams County Chamber of Commerce that requires me to do that. I am pushing you, pressing you uh, to come back to Gettysburg to visit. And when you do, this is a book you're going to want to read. There's three chapters on Gettysburg, I believe, maybe just two, but they are indispensable. And they're indispensable because what they offer the reader is they offer you a, a survey of military operations with some altitude. Right? It doesn't get down into the weeds and too detailed. Mm-hmm. So he, he does that brilliantly. 
and Alexander offers these just priceless, priceless anecdotes. He described Robert E. Lee getting angry. I didn't think he got angry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He describes Lee getting angry. I mean, he's got this just this great stuff, but he's super smart. Alexander is, and so he's balanced, he's fair. He's a defender of Longstreet, but then he admits or acknowledges some of Longstreet's faults. So fighting for the Confederacy, I, I can't say enough about this book. And it is in paper as well. So it's a, a book that's within reach. So yeah, I, like I, said, I really hope you all, you know, and I'll say to your audience as well, that uh, they'll come to the Civil War Institute. It really is, if you think you've, you know, experienced this battlefield, Gettysburg, uh, in every way conceivable, I think that if you come to the conference, uh, you'll find that you're going to, be able to explore it in new and different ways. You'll hear some of the finest scholars, historians, public historians, National Park Service, people from all walks of life. It's a very friendly, warm group, and it's not stuffy at, at, at all. So I, again, and if you're a teacher out there, then we do have a teacher scholarship program as well. We'd love to have you here. Yeah, I'll make sure to share that with everybody. Is there a way that, uh anyone can reach out if they have questions or would like to know more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, can I type my, uh, my email on this or would that not even show up? I'm happy to type my email. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it would show up. I can always share it as well. Sure, for sure. So it's, you can just send me an email at P-C-A-R-M-I-C-H at Gettysburg.edu. So P-C-A-R-M-I-C-H, stops at P-H, at gettysburg.edu you can also just look up civil war institute but you gotta put gettysburg college civil war institute at gettysburg college and you'll see that we do a wide range of things including the conference and so we are if you're a member of a round table you get a significant discount as well um, there's a lot of discounts because we want this gettysburg college wants this to be an affordable experience there is you can't we do we do our conference friday saturday sunday monday tuesday your lodging at Gettysburg College dorms, your meals, your tours, your talks, all of that is a little over a thousand dollars. And for most people it's under a thousand because they find a way to get a discount. There's no way you can find all of that package. Hell, you can't find a hotel room for four nights for under a thousand dollars, right? So we really purposely make it affordable because we want people to be able to come and to enjoy this place. I mean, we, our mission is an educational mission. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think we live up to that in our price point as well. And I'd be more than happy to answer any questions and uh, about the conference uh, or about my book or whatever. Can't, I can't answer anything about the dead. Uh, <laughs> that's not, uh, not my he, thing. My band, was in the band now though, so. My band now is the Hold Steady. Have you listened to Hold Steady yet? Listen I have to Hold not. Steady. The Hold Steady, The Hold Steady. Give it some time. I let one of my colleagues listen to The Hold Steady and her response was, is this music? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty rough. That was pretty rough. I'm more of a classic. I like The Dead. I'm a big Springsteen fan. I don't know if you like Springsteen. Yeah, I, absolutely, I like Springsteen. He's got a few nice Civil War songs. He's got that song on Youngstown. And yeah. yeah, that's got a nice Civil War reference. I thought his autobiography slash memoir. I thought that was pretty good as well. Nebraska is my favorite Springsteen album. I think it's, I love, I love Nebraska. I love Nebraska. Nebraska. It's pretty good. 
it's I, hard I, to beat uh, the river though for me or darkness on the edge of town I, so. those are also great as well and i will and we're gonna all about sharing books lewis maser um it's maser it's not it is maser i believe you should get this book, man. If you like Springsteen, he is a Civil War historian. He's written some really nice books about Lincoln. He teaches a class at Rutgers on Bruce Springsteen. And so I get right there. Runaway Dreams, M-A-S-U-R. There's his name. Yeah, I'm definitely going to get that one. <laughs> and no, it's really, it's really, really good. It's really he sounds good. right up my alley because he likes the Civil War. He likes Springsteen. That's I like Springsteen. You know what? I'll get you his email address so you can bring him on the show. He's super dynamic and really interesting. And he also loves... The hold steady. So just one more. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to start coming. a new show. We'll do a Springsteen support. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm with you, man. I love music as well. And my students finally got me on Spotify. So I'm always getting new things from there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's great. And then I so appreciate this and appreciate getting to know uh, the people who watch and follow your, your show and, and all seriousness. We're really eager for you to get back out here to Gettysburg. And one of the things that we've done with other people who have podcasts um, and do you know this kind of programming is that we let them do it at the conference. And so we had Addressing Gettysburg and they uh, contacted many of our speakers and they did brief interviews with them. So, you know, you come out here, you can take your, your show on the road. Yeah, that'd be great. Like, I would love to do that. Just be prepared to have to explain that. that most of our <laughs> people, of course, are, well, hell, man, most deadheads now are what? In their 60s? Yeah, they they're up there. Yeah. I know. I feel like I stick out the shows. I'm definitely a younger one there. So <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Everyone tells me I'm an old soul my whole life. So, so yeah, it just, it just absolutely fits. Yeah. What's the other, uh, what's the other almost purely instrumental band that has like a cult-like following? Fish. Fish. Yeah, are you a fish follower? I'm not. There, there's kind of some tension there between the dead and fish, the fans. I thought so. Yeah. There's a little bit. Some people like both, but I'm, I'm just a deadhead. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it's just it's sort of fitting, you know, the people who love the period of sort of 1960s and free love and openness. Oh, but wait a minute. You pick one band if you pick right. <laughs> you're fish. You're fish. Don't cross this line. It's the contradiction is just like the soldiers we talked about. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, I, like I said, I really appreciate this. And, yeah, I appreciate it as well. It's been great. Uh, anyone, yeah, anyone watching this, send me an email. I'm happy to direct them in any way or answer any questions. And uh, looking forward to seeing and meeting you in person. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. I hope you learned something from Dr. Carmichael and will pick up his book, The War for the Common Soldier. Also, head over to thecivilwarcenter.com to learn more and to check out the commemorative coins we now have in stock. Also, I hope you'll join us next week as we talk to Tom Van Winkle of the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust. As always, please like, share, and subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.